Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Hello, this is Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm your host, Mark Yakano, a managing director in Major Lindsay in Africa's Transform Advisory Services practice. Today, I have a special guest, my first um, repeat guest, Dr. Rachel Fry. Rachel is a clinical psychologist in Birmingham, Alabama, and has had a passionate interest in helping lawyers cope with mental health issues over the last several years. We've asked her to come back today simply because since we started this podcast, we've had an intervention called a pandemic and so many other things going on that we thought it would be great to get her perspective on what life looks like, you know, just a little over a year since we first talked. So Rachel, welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you and um, it's, it's good to be with you. Um, let's just jump into it. You know, you're, okay. you've seen a lot of lawyers over the last several years. What are you seeing now is we're, you know, well over a year into the, um, into the pandemic and uh, you know, the change in the way we live. Yeah, sure. Well, I will say a couple of different trends I've noticed. One is I'm seeing a lot of younger lawyers, uh, in particular lawyers that graduated in 2020. And, you know, I can't tell you how many calls over the last you know month or so even um, that I've gotten about people just saying, hey, I graduated in 2020 and I'm having a really difficult time trying to transition to practice law with everything else going on. And why, are, why is that? What are the reasons they're giving you? Or what are the reasons you're observing? I think a lot of it is lack of support. And, and it may not be necessarily that the law firm is not providing support. But I think, you know, as you well know, associates are hesitant to ask for help anyway, um, and particularly in that first year. And if, if support isn't readily available or there's not training opportunities and in places where they can kind of have you know, more organic conversations about how to manage situations, it's, it really creates even more of a gap there. Do you think that the lack of a consistent presence in the office and a lack of sort of immersion into the firm culture through the office is playing, it has an impact? Definitely, definitely. Not, not knowing who's going to be there or what days people are going to be there makes it even harder to to know how to touch base with people, and even just having the physical presence around you, as we all know, makes a huge difference. Are, are many of the younger lawyers that are talking to you indicating that the presence, their presence at the office is like intermittent, as opposed to, you know, regularly scheduled, and who they're seeing isn't always the same? Is that part of it? Yeah, that's part of it. And I think also the expectation that they're in the office uh, without other people being there sometimes can be a little confusing um, to know when, when can they work from home and, and, and not work from home as we're kind of entering this new hybrid law culture, if you will. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that established associates have a better feel for what they can and can't do. And, you know, associates who are brand new to law you know, it's always been the expectation and you go to law school thinking when you graduate, you're going to go to an office. And so I think there's got to be a kind of a quantum disconnect there. There, there is, there is, and it's hard, hard to know where that line is and 
looking around other associates, what other associates are doing is kind of their gauge um, for better, for better, for worse at times. So with respect to associates who are a little further up the career continuum, we're starting to read a lot about burnout because frankly, the demand for associates and the demands on their time and an active M&A market and other things have really seemed to led to a lot of really busy people. Are you seeing, are you seeing sort of the, that, that type of ramification, you know, burnout from just pure overwork? Yes. Um, and I think that's been there and been rising, but with the pandemic, it's even, even more so. Um, and another reason why I feel passionate about training programs for associates. Yeah. And, and, how do you think firms are dealing with training programs in this distributed environment where their workforce isn't in one place and they may have uh, trimmed their bottom lines to, to, to shore up their 2020 results? Mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit all over the map, honestly. And, you know, while I have been doing training programs and, and mostly virtual training programs this year with a couple of different firms, um, and those have been really helpful, I think, and the feedback's been good. Uh, but I do think other firms have, have not offered a whole lot um, of training. And, and I've even had associates say to me, you know, they, they send out surveys and they ask if, if we would like to have more trainings. And we say, yes, like we need it, we need it today. But then time passes um, and the trainings don't come necessarily. And what's the kind of training you're doing that if associates find welcome and effective? What kind of, what, what are you doing with these younger lawyers and associates to, to help them navigate, you know, the kind of current climate? Well, let me just say first, I think any crisis point is a good time to look and evaluate and see where things need to change. And so part of my messaging has been, look, we're all in this crisis but this is a good time for us to develop some tools that we didn't have before uh, as well, because we're gonna be moving into new terrain. Um, and at that point, when we first started doing trainings, we didn't really know how long this pandemic was gonna be. And we still don't know exactly, but we at least have more hope now than we did. But what, one of the um, big things I do is really help them be able to stop and, and pause and think about what they do on a daily basis. Um, and be intentional with, with recognizing triggers, um, learning where they can set boundaries and where they can't, and being able to, to make choices. And um, I'll tell you, a lot of, a lot of um, my work with associates is communication-based and helping them be able to become more clear, more assertive communicators. To articulate their needs better and to find better ways to articulate um, their workload or, or what are they becoming better at communicating at? All of it. You know, when, when they need some help, um, they're very hesitant to ask for help and assume, you know, and operate under the assumption that they need to know exactly how to do every single thing the moment they set out of law school, um, which, which we all know is impossible. Um, being able to uh, just communicate about day-to-day -day things, you know, with feeling a little bit overwhelmed or uh, not sure they can take on other assignments and just being able to put what they have out there in front of someone and say, this is what I have. And I don't think I can take anything else on, can I process this with you? 
uh, and then just communicating and asking for feedback. Uh, and that's something that, that doesn't come a lot, um, but for the annual reviews uh, and, and you know things like that, more formal processes. But what we know is we need consistent feedback and people want it actually. Prior to the pandemic, those were likely issues before the pandemic. Have, have they been exacerbated or has the need to address them become even more urgent? The need for to address them has become more urgent because we're not seeing people face to face and we're operating in a more virtual world, which is we need these these really good communication techniques more so than we ever did before. So the lack of being able to sit down with someone or to read their body language or stick your head in their office has real cumulative impact on their ability to get feedback support and development, I think is what your, I sense is where you're going with that. Yes, exactly. And also, you know, where if they needed help with a project or something that was going on, it was easy to ask someone or step into their office, but it's more formalized now because you've got to set up a call or a Zoom or something, yeah. even if it's like a two second question uh, that they need help with. And one of the things I've encouraged team leaders and older lawyers to do is just have set meetings uh, with their team every week. So there's some consistency and they know that's a time where they can ask some of these questions. Have older lawyers shown uh, an understanding or comprehension of the challenges that this new environment is posing to younger lawyers? Is there any recognition that there needs to be an, sort of an evolution of how they manage given that lack of in-office time on a consistent basis? I, I do think some older lawyers are aware and are really in tune to that. I will say, <laughs> I think there has been so many demands placed on the older lawyers from a leadership perspective that I, I wonder if it's getting a little bit lost in the shuffle. Just because they're cascading down a lot of things on them, right? They're having to do more leadership more work, more engagement in the firm. And so it's not as easy to perhaps set these kind of regular communications or um, maybe even give them the thought they need given all the other pressures the profession's been under. Yes, and I think the, the sole focus and, and rightfully so has been, let's keep the firm afloat uh, and and so there's a lot of things that fall in underneath that umbrella uh, and training is as important as it is and support as important as that is, um, can easily get lost in the shuffle with all the other things. Have you noticed any um, increases in lawyers coming to you who are maybe using more reliant on alcohol or substances or than they were prior to the pandemic? I mean, it's been a problem in the profession for a long time, but has the mm -hmm. pandemic exacerbated that? Yes, I think so for sure. And, you know, what's the statistic that 60% of Americans are drinking more? Um, and I've actually done a couple of videos recently about, you know, hey, this is, this is a thing. And um, it's something that I think is difficult for law firms to address sometimes um, the right route to go. But yes, it, it is absolutely. I've seen in my practice people say, I don't know if I have a problem or I don't. I don't know if I do have a problem, an actual problem. 
or, you know, I don't know how much is too much or on the other end of it, I know I'm drinking too much, but I don't know what to do about it. Interesting. I would think that the fact that they're not getting any social cues from the firm because they're not in an atmosphere where they're at interacting with other people in the firm or able to kind of benchmark themselves against other people must complicate it. Do you think that's true? I think so. And I also think just in general, we're not very good at gauging our own alcohol use. Um, it's kind of running joke that when you fill out your questionnaires, when you go see your physician, that they double the amount that you actually put down on the piece of paper. Um, but you know, I just, I just don't think it's something that's talked about enough or just in terms of how much is actually too much and how can you start to substitute and break that pattern up? Is it harder because of the sense of isolation that people have felt uh, as they've been kind of barracked in their home uh, for an extended period of time and really haven't had um, the opportunity in most instances for safe contact with, with many other humans in some instances? Mm -hmm. I think so. And I guess the way I, I kind of have looked at it is I think it kind of is a subtle thing that started and it started out as kind of this bright light at the end of the day of this is all really hard and I'm going to have this glass of wine at the end of the day because it gives me some satisfaction from getting through all this stuff, this pandemic stuff. And then it slowly just increased and increased to the point where maybe it is kind of a bright light at the end of the day, but it's also causing some problems on some other ends. Um, how has... Um... How has the stress impacted lawyers' relationships with their families? Because we've heard a lot of anecdotal tales anyway that, you know, being home, being with the family, especially lawyers that are used to traveling, that the, the, the compactness of the family unit has, has created its own sense of stress. Yes. And I think it's tested a lot of different relationships because um, everybody's used to having their own space. And then as you know, you know, lawyers in particular like going to their work environments and kind of getting and having that space in between home and work. And I think a lot of lawyers have continued to go in. Um, we've seen with a lot of the senior lawyers that they've kind of been going in um, from, the, from the beginning a little bit. Uh, more so than we've seen with younger generations. Um, but yes, I mean, I think when this is all said and done, lawyers and even outside of lawyers, we're going to see a lot more statistics with um, marital therapy and or in or divorce relationship problems. Are you seeing more couples therapy in your practice? Um, I don't do as much couples therapy anymore. Um, but I know from my colleagues that, that do that they absolutely are. Yeah, it seems to me like there's going to have to be a post pandemic almost reconstruction project to rebuild, you know, the mental health and, and, and a sense of stability among both adolescents, younger lawyers, and even lawyers who've been at it for a long time, whose, whose worlds and whose perspectives have been completely uprooted without any warning. I think so, for sure. Um, 
And I'm looking forward to being part of that, that process because I think it's so important. Have you um, observed that access to care has become an issue as more and more people seem to have a need for therapy and, 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 and some type of intervention? Yes. Uh, and this is, this is something that quite honestly was happening before the pandemic. Was it? And it just has gotten obviously uh, worse. Uh, and it's harder and harder, you know, when I have people that call, haven't been able to take new people on for quite a while. And when I have people call and, and they're looking for someone, it's hard to even find colleagues um, that are taking new clients on right now um, or that don't have a three or four month wait period. Um, which so is, is that something you've observed often is that like you, most, most, many therapists have like a close patient roster and many others have like a three to four month wait? Yes. What are the implications of that? <laughs> well, I, um, I don't know. Um, you know, it's something that's, um, I recently have been in the last month or so, um, taking on a couple more people just to try to, to uh, do my piece, you know, and I, and I, and I want to, but um, I, I don't know. I think, you know, a lot of it, I always think about things in, root, in terms of root causes um, and why are people's anxiety uh, and depression, where can we jump in on the front end and I'll bring it back to lawyers and say that that's why I'm so passionate about um, working with firms and working with associates when they first start. Do you think lawyers are taking, making enough use of like lawyers assistance programs and things beyond, you know, kind of a traditional therapeutic route that are there for them? I don't. And why do you think that is? Well, it's something we talk about a lot and it's the focus of your podcast, but it's a real thing, this stigma. And, um, and I even, I, I, I think the stigma gets a little bit worse the longer you practice law. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. But I will say um, for these associates to reach out, it is very difficult and they have to be in a pretty bad place um, even to do that. Even with the understanding that like lawyers assistance programs are completely confidential, do you think they're just cynical that the system works that way? I do. That's unfortunate, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it it it's um it's really unfortunate because those programs, while not a substitute for therapy, can provide at least some structure, guidance, and resources. Yes. And one of my good friends is an older, he's in his mid seventies and he went through the LAP program probably about 25 years ago. And one of the things he says is that he, he has not come across a whole lot of lawyers that weren't forced into the LAP program. And he was one of those uh, that had to be forced into the LAP program. So it's almost like a function of part of a disciplinary regimen or a keep your license sort of situation as opposed to a lawyer in crisis reaching out and looking at that as a resource. Yes. Yeah, that's, um, that's unfortunate because those programs offer quite a lot. Mm -hmm. They do. Do you, do you think that um, 
there's any increase or have you seen any increase in basically support groups or other sort of um, what I would call, I guess, adjunct opportunities to express yourself or hear like-minded people's problems? Have you seen any increase in either participation in those types of, of groups or even the development of those types of groups? Well, I mean, I have, um, and I will say I have been developing programs like that because again, seeing everything that was going on before and even now it's worse, we all can acknowledge that. Um, I think there needs to be more support and prevention on the front end. Um, so what, that- what, what kind of programs? Um, teaching tools and building communities uh, where, where people have each other that they can rely on someone else and they know that there are people in the group where they can talk openly and it's psychologically safe. Have you built support groups as part of the work you've been doing? I have not um, to date, but I have got some ideas in the pro in process um, for those things. Oh, so that's a to be announced? That's <laughs> a to be announced. Have, have you dealt with any lawyers who have actually had COVID? Yes. And what's been your experience with them? I, 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 um, I actually had COVID and was hospitalized for did. a long time. So um, I'm very curious. I had a different reaction than, than some, but I'm very mm -hmm. curious what you've seen in terms of the aftermath of, of COVID. Slow thinking. Um, having difficulty focusing, feeling pretty winded, um, and emotionally just off a little bit. Yeah, I will say that from my own experience, building back, my stamina was the hardest challenge. Mm. I was lucky not to have brain fog. But <laughs> I do think it's, it's, if you get really sick, you know, the psychological effects of what that outcome could have been has a major impact on, on, on kind of how you recover. Yes. So, you know, what I read is that and heard is that there's not a lot of great amount of resources um, in place or modalities in place for post-COVID patients who are suffering from some of these symptoms such as, you know, long-term fatigue or brain fog. Um, when you come across COVID patients, how is um, how are you approaching them from at least a, a mental health perspective, understanding that there's also medical, more traditional medical interventions that, that are needed? Well, and I'm, I'm thinking um, back to some of the people I work with that have had COVID. And for, for most of them, I have not seen as much of the long, I mean, the physical, and that's kind of worked itself out a little bit more over time. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen that as being a big piece of um, what we're working through. What are the kind of issues that you're working through with post-COVID patients? Mm -hmm. so, um, getting back on track um, with work and trying to figure out, you know, how do they, how do they want things to look forward? What can they manage and not manage, um, personal or professional? And um, I think it's, it's brought a lot of conflicts into play because it's kind of put things in perspective in a different way. Yes, and, and I would think that 
that's where communication skills would be crucial. I know from my own experience, when I got out of the hospital at five o'clock, I couldn't function. I was just exhausted. Mm. And then, you know, over time, eventually I was able to stay up till 7.30. And then 10 weeks later, I had a normal bedtime. But I imagine, you know, if you're an associate in a firm or a lawyer with expectations, um, that, that weariness that you really have no control over must be a stressor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would think so. Um, and I think that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're having troubles expressing managing your workload when you're healthy, then, mm-hmm. you know, expressing when you're, when you've been through a psychological and physical experience, um, and it's not really just burnout, it's just actual, you know, the reservoir of energy is gone. I have to imagine that that's had an impact on how well people, especially in our profession, bounce back. Definitely. Yes. So and you, something. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and something that we'll really need to be looking at um, as we learn more about the long-term um, impacts and how long they last. Do you think that there's going to be a lot of um, study? on the impacts, not only on people, the pandemic on our profession and people have had COVID, but just the long-term impact of what the isolation and the lockdowns and, you know, the political divisions, the politicization of the pandemic, do you think there's going to be a lot of long-term interest in, 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 in how that's impacted people? I do. And I also, I kind of go back to, you know, before the pandemic, we were experiencing a loneliness epidemic. Um, I mean, Americans, the majority of Americans reported they felt lonely on a consistent basis before the pandemic. Prior to quarantine, prior to lockdowns, that was an epidemic before the pandemic. Yes. That's interesting. I hadn't really realized that that was, is, significant an issue even before all of this began. Yes. And so that's, you know, I guess I'm going, I'm thinking there will be a lot of studies, but I'm also kind of looking at it personally from the lens of we, we had these things before and if there was any resistance before, we know it's now worse probably. Um, and some of our, our research and measurements are showing us that some we don't know yet. So let's dive in <laughs> because regardless, we know that there are some things that are some programs and trainings that are needed, support groups. So we, we, we know loneliness was cited as an issue in some of the studies of the legal profession. Mm-hmm. But if we look at the pre-pandemic world, what were some of the reasons that Americans felt more lonely than ever? Why was there a lonely ep- loneliness epidemic? No, I think- Sure. I think a lot of it um, is because we're such, we've become such, such an electronic oriented society. And, you know, if you think back to 30, 40 years ago and knowing your neighbors um, and really, you know, spending time with people um, physically, uh, it was, it was more. Um, But also I think we're seeing uh, the loneliest groups are not what you would typically think of in terms of you might think, well, maybe it's elderly. Uh, we're not seeing that. 
uh, what we're seeing is that the lonelier groups are, are like the younger generations. That's surprising. Um, and and it, mm -hmm. do you think that, and you think in part that's because of the digital world we've created? You know, I think there's a lot of different factors you could, you could look at and say contribute, um, you know, higher anxiety rates and um, we're seeing higher anxiety rates and things like that as well in the younger populations. Um, just not connecting or feeling connected to other people. Um, social media plays a role somewhere in there. What, what else impacts that feeling? Because you typically think, like you said, of younger people as being more social and more connected in a personal mm -hmm. light. What, what are some of the other drivers besides social media kind of creating an electronic proxy for human contact? Well, you know, researchers have decided a lot of different things, but when you when you think about our culture as a whole, we've become very individualistic um, and very self-reliant um, on on ourselves, um, and it, we're not we're not as connected or um, meshed with other people. We don't have those connections. We're not we're not building those deep connections or making the effort sometimes to build those deeper connections. So if you take what's going on generally and you apply it to a profession where people are sort of programmed to do it themselves and to not complain, it would only stand to reason that perhaps this has really intensified what's been going on in the legal profession for some time. Yes. Loneliness and but the loneliness epidemic in society kind of uh, amplifies the sense of isolation and um, loneliness that the studies show are prevalent in our profession. Yes. That's a daunting um, reality, isn't it? Yep, we need, a, we need a good joke in here right now. Yeah, I, I wish I could come up with one other than, um, other than, um, I don't know how you can, um, in, a, in a sea of people, it's, it's almost inconceivable that you could be feeling isolated and alone, but I think so many of us have felt that when we've been in a crowd, pre-pandemic, pre and now we're all terrified to be in a crowd. Absolutely, and that is um, loneliness, right, is even being in the crowd and still feeling completely lonely, and I think that's a great point to make, and you know, I don't, I don't think, um, I look at it in, in a lot of ways as it's finally shining some lights on some things um, that we're ready to tackle and um, moving into you, that. You think that everything that's gone on has raised awareness? I do. And I've seen that even with firms' responses and training, wanting to do more trainings um, for the firms that are doing that that I don't know that some of this would have happened um, without the pandemic and everything that's come with it. And what, what segment of the firms were um, it, within a firm typically have been the ones that push creating a, a better support system or, or infrastructure? Has that been led by the demands of younger lawyers, or has that really been cognition by maybe a changing demographic and leadership that it's needed, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or both? Uh, I will say I think the women's women's groups 
have pushed that. Uh, and I also think it really comes down to, my experience has been, it really comes down to the leadership and how transformational the leadership is. Do you see any difference in approach and leadership depending on the size of the firm? Not necessarily. I think it's the people that are involved in the leadership. And um, leadership has been something I've had to learn a lot about uh, in terms of every firm, as you, as you know, operates differently. Sometimes it's the HR groups that make the choices about trainings. Sometimes it's the managing partner. Um, sometimes it's the C-suite. It, it just kind of varies. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to um, having a leader that really sees the value and the need and what it might be able to do for the firm. So regardless of who's managing the initiative, the success is really tied to leadership being bought in, that there's a, there's, there's a, a need that requires a solution or at least infrastructure to help get to a solution. Yes. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's an important lesson because I think that people came to view through the lens of employee assistance programs or HR resources that that was enough, and it seems like this is um this is a time where, you know, really leading from the front and management commitment to creating an environment where there's support and safety in reaching out is more critical than ever. I agree. Do you see, um, I know some of the women's groups have been very articulate um, messengers for the needs and drivers of change. Do you see any differences in and how firms handle or address the situation based on the age or demographic of its leadership? Well, I can't think of anything obvious right this second, but I will say, I, th I think, of course, the more senior you are, um, the easier it is to have conversations and um, be able to feel like you've got choices. Do you think senior um, folks are willing to have conversations and help create um, an, a, a, an environment where um, reaching out for help is, is okay? I think more are than we, we give credit. I think, I think that a lot of times it's the um, fear from the person that needs the help that creates a wall, it may not be there. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting thing. And you know, there's been a lot of um, a lot of very prominent lawyers. In fact, one of my prior podcast guests, Mark Goldstein from Reed Smith, is very good about telling a story about how he went to the firm and indicated that he was struggling and needed to take a break and how well received that was. And I do think that there is there's certainly stigma, but there may be less stigma than we realize within the context of a given firm. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And that's one thing I push the associates I work with on is testing things out and not making assumptions. Yeah, and not making assumptions um, before experimenting. Do you think they come pre-wired to assume that asking for help is a problem? 
Yes. <laughs> to some degree, I do. I think it's, um, you know, uh, and, and I don't know, I know you're familiar with it, your listeners may not, but um, Dr. Larry Richards' research on yeah. um, personality and characteristics and lawyers and um, yes, you know, having, having high autonomy and high levels of skepticism um, and not being really trusting of other people is the opposite of skepticism. Yes. Uh, and so, sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. You, I once did an overlay of uh, Dr. Richard's lawyer's brain mm -hmm. with an article on toxic masculinity. <laughs> and there were a lot of unfortunate overlaps, mm -hmm. which, um, which doesn't bode well for feeling comfortable seeking help. Um, my only hope is that those of us who have struggled over the years and clinicians who are willing to share perspective and, and, and knowledge will break down those barriers. And there's, um, I think, you know, the pandemic has only, you know, grown the roster of lawyers who are willing to share their struggles and, and, and their issues. And, and um, hopefully that will do mm -hmm. some good. I, I agree. I agree. And you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of times when I'm doing a presentation, depending on the group, I will put up a chart showing his research um, and where, where the, they all fall. Um, you know, skepticism, autonomy, trust, urgency. Um, and, um, you know, people are really surprised. Uh, when lawyers see that chart, they agree with it, but they don't really they haven't really connected to that yet. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of change possible in seeing the chart because there's always kind of a chuckle in the room of, okay, you know, yes, this makes sense. So self-awareness, there's a lot mm -hmm. of room for improvement through self-awareness. Yes, and this is something that I do a whole lot of work um, with lawyers building that self-awareness and emotional yeah. intelligence. Let's talk about that because let's talk about a lawyer who, who who comes like almost like a blank slate. How do you begin to? No one's got a totally blank slate. Some people <laughs> actually to, come. I was pretty trying to picture close. that. <laughs> Some people come pretty close on the emotional intelligence, self awareness spectrum. Mm -hmm. How do you? What are your? What are your? Um, what's your approach to helping them build that 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 broader context around themselves? Well, I have to first frame it in a way that they'll be able to relate to. So if I told them to tell me how they were feeling and to notice how they were feeling for a week, they would probably not be able to do that. Okay. If they had a blank slate. So I would have to ask it in a way of what, what do you, where do you feel like there's areas where you're, you're holding back from being able to reach your goals and so kind of work backwards. Up. What are your obstacles to getting what you want? Yes. As a way to back into how are you feeling? Yes. Or what, what are you aware of? Right. And then once they're able to back into that, then obviously we can, we can open up the minefield and get into all other places. And, but we have to, we have to kind of go into it backwards a little bit, uh -huh. um, which is also, I'll just say one of the things I love about working with lawyers is 
and, and, and any, any, anybody, anyone that I work with really, but, but I'll say in particular for lawyers, because I think there's such a tough facade on the outside that once we're able to get into those layers, it gets really fun. And we're able to really see all the different complexities of the person and how awesome they really are. Um, but they're sh showing one side of about 10 of their sides. Do you think that with breakthroughs like that, it's a question of lawyers didn't realize they had all those positive attributes or do you think they were just pushed down as being viewed as not required for success? I think if both. that makes any sense. No, I think both. Um, but I think one of the one of the coolest things I like to see is a lawyer starting to see all their other sides because they've kind of pigeonholed themselves into this one identity or one state, um, if you will. So is 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 a I, I won't say a good therapeutic outcome, but it's a positive outcome <laughs> that a lawyer sees themselves as more than just their job. Yes. And what happens when you get a lawyer out of that assessment of self-worth through by job to a broader understanding of themselves as a person? What's, what are the positive benefits of that? How do you see that impact their lives? It depends on where they are in their career. You know, one thing I really noticed is I like working with lawyers in transitions, whether it be just starting law or moving into a leadership role or thinking about retiring. And when you think about those three different transitions, there's a lot of different opportunities depending on which one it is. Um, but let's just say it's somebody that's retiring or thinking about retiring, but they don't really know what that's gonna look like or how they're gonna do it or even what they're gonna do after they retire. Um, but they've kind of decided that they don't wanna be one of those lawyers that hangs out in the office and comes and reads the paper every day. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's really, really working with them to try to find out what are some of their interests. Uh, maybe they've been working on some of their interests all along, but maybe they haven't. And um, starting to open doors and experiment in different areas. And that's really what, what, what it's all about, right? It's getting people mm -hmm. to open up and be receptive mm -hmm. to new ideas and to defining themselves in other ways besides just what they do for a living. Yes. Well, you have been very generous with your time, and I think we've had an interesting conversation. Any <laughs> advice you want to offer the lawyers out there before I turn off the record button? I would just say that I think that there's a lot of hope out there right now. And, you know, I do think that the legal profession is changing, um, albeit slowly, um, for, the, for the better, for everybody, um, from a productivity standpoint, from a what really relates to how productive someone can be. Um, and just to, uh, if you're going through something, just to not be hesitant about reaching out. There's nothing to lose in, in reaching out and making a phone call. Well, we're going to end on that happy note. Dr. Mm -hmm. Fry, thank you. Rachel, thank you for being um, my guest. This has been Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to our great guests for coming back. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.